Morgan Shortle, and you're listening to the January 27, 2010 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. days we think nothing of jumping in the car, no matter what the weather, in order to get where we're going. But in the early days of automobiles, people had to plan what to wear in their vehicles to protect them from the elements in the dusty, dirty roads. Jordan Museum Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman and me as we celebrate the opening of the Kansas Museum of History's latest exhibit, Cars, The Need for Speed, by taking a look at a motoring coat and a pair of goggles that protected our early day road warriors. And then... Since today's episode is our 99th podcast, we asked you to connect William Allen White to Maxwell Smart's sidekick, Agent 99. How do we get from our man in Emporia to beloved 1960s TV character? Find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, Left in the Dust. Good morning, Nikayla, or afternoon, I guess it is now. Hello, morning. <laughs> uh, we're here today to talk about a duster, which is a driving coat, mm-hmm. and a pair of goggles. And I just wanted to let everybody know that you can currently see these on display in our new um, exhibit, Cars, the Need for Speed, which I think runs through November. Right. So you guys should come out and see it. Definitely. So um, can you describe mm-hmm. the duster and goggles for us? Sure. Um, the duster was owned by a Topekan named Dora Bozier. And it's made of linen. It's unlined, so it's probably um, used in the spring or the summer. It's um, Edwardian in style, and it even has room in the back for her bustle. Mm. Yes, because every woman wants that look. (laughs) Um, It kind of has a menswear-inspired style that was popular in the early 1900s, which is when it dates from. Um, The goggles consist of glass lenses that are set in round metal frames, and the frames are mounted in a black leather mask that has corduroy trim around the edges. And there's an elastic strap that goes around the head. Uh, the goggles came from a man named Aaron Trigger, who was an optometrist and jeweler in Waukini, Kansas, so one of our rare Western artifacts. Um, and they may have been sold in his store. So Cool. And why did early drivers have to wear such clothing? Well, things were a little different back then than they are today. Um, in the first place, roads weren't paved, and in many cases, they were a little more than cow paths across fields, so it was kind of messy. Um, even the best roads were dirt, so they were only as good as the weather was outside. And if it was rainy, you got muddy, and if it was windy, you got dirty. So as a result of their construction, road conditions were pretty horrible, even if you compare them to the potholes that we have today from <laughs> our nice snowstorm recently. Um, and it didn't help that most cars were entirely open. They didn't have windshields or solid roofs or side windows. And that meant that anything that the car stirred up on the road ended up inside the car. So dirt, road debris, plant material, bugs, just about anything you know you can imagine on your windshield, that would be all over you when you're riding in the yeah. car. So Make sure you keep your mouth closed. Yeah, exactly. No chatting in the car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so was the jacket called a duster simply because it kept the dust off, or were, was there a more fashionable purpose for them? It did serve both purposes. Um, people wanted to look fashionable, and they wanted to be protected at the same time. So there was a little concession, you know, to look to look good. Um, so both protection from the elements and fashion. And um, part of this was because driving was the new hobby. It was kind of 
the it thing to do, and only the wealthy could do it because they could afford cars. So um, it just it wouldn't do to be seen in public in a fashionable car and look like a hobo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure they look great with their goggles and their oh, yeah, yeah. coats and their scarves and whatever else. Oh yeah, very cute. <laughs> but yeah, they were trying to look as fashionable as they could while staying clean, so that whenever they got to their destination, they you know could take off their coat and. Yeah. And look nice. <laughs> so clearly the goggles weren't worn because they were attractive. Probably not. <laughs> so what was their purpose? Were they just old-timey sunglasses or what? Well, they serve a little different purpose. Sunglasses did exist at the time, but these were goggles were independent of sunglasses. Um, and they also served a purpose beyond regular glasses, too. So like we talked about um, before, if you think about your windshield after a day on the road, you know, all of that is flying at your face, at your eyes. So goggles were very important to protect the eyes from the bugs and dirt and grass and anything that's flying through the air. And mainly they were concerned about it causing damage, you know, so you'd be blinded or whatever by a bug on the road. Um, <laughs> and some doctors even told, recommended that people go home and wash their eyes out. Um, I'm sure you've seen it in antique stores, little eye cups, <laughs> which look really pleasant, don't they? <laughs> so they were telling people to wash their eyes with a solution of water and boric acid. So that would act as both cleaning and disinfectant, just in case there was anything in there that might irritate or scratch the eye later on. So, Yikes. So important, wear your goggles. Yes. <laughs> they could have made tented goggles, and you wouldn't have to have sunglasses, right? That's true. Yeah, maybe little little things over like the little top. Little visors, yeah. Yeah, oh, that'd be cute. Yeah. <laughs> Even better than yeah. just goggles on their own. <laughs> so were jackets and goggles the only clothing or accessories people wore when they were driving? People, it kind of got out of control, I think. Um, much like today, you know, we put on more layers the colder mm -hmm. it gets. So so when it got colder back then, women had to make sure that they wore heavy clothing from their skin out to provide extra warmth. So even their underclothes were heavier duty than they, they normally would wear. Um, and open cars didn't have heaters, obviously, because they didn't serve any purpose. So their coats were made of heavier materials, sometimes um, leather on the exterior and the lined with fur, or anything that could help keep the wind and the cold out. They also, both women and men, wore hats to keep the dust um, out of their faces and off their hair. And they weren't big fancy hats like we usually think of people wearing. They were smaller ones that would stay on your head in case it was really windy outside, which, you know, in Kansas, <laughs> that happens. Um, but some women took the head covering to an extreme and they added a veil over the hat. Um, <laughs> and this isn't like a, you know, sissy little veil. Many of the pictures of women in veils, I know, uh, it was more like a big blanket over their entire face and entire head and then tied under the chin. <laughs> so that, really cute. And then many doctors did recommend that women either drive at very so slow speeds or skip car rides entirely because their constitution was too weak and it might cause a mental breakdown. Oh, wow. So you can either bundle up and go out in your car, or you can just stay home. Wow, to preserve your sanity. Yeah. Uh, so how, do you know how long it took for cars to get windshields? I mean, how long did this fad go on with goggles? And I'm not sure. I know most of the ones we have in our collection are early 1900s. Yeah. And I'd say, I'm not a car expert, but I would say probably by the teens and 20s, things were improving. <laughs> You know, and the car we have, um, the Great Smith on display right now, mm -hmm. it does have like a convertible top that goes up, but it's very, it's soft. So yeah. it wouldn't necessarily, it'd be some protection, but not the best protection. And the sides are very open. So if you think about driving down a muddy road and all that kicking up, we have pictures of people in cars where they're just covered in mud <laughs> from head to toe. So it looks like car riding would be a whole lot of fun back then. I don't know why it ever took off. <laughs> so um, do you think there should have been advisory signs during the early days of driving? 
driving, perhaps giving advice on weather conditions and driving a tire? I say absolutely. Yeah. yeah <laughs> and what would they have said? <laughs> well, I think if you were approaching a road that had high water or was washed out, there could be a sign that would say, put scuba or snorkeling gear on now. <laughs> and the same could go for muddy conditions because a rubber suit would be much easier to clean than any type of fabric that, that we wear. Um, and in Kansas, in the Flint Hills especially, it's really windy. And if you're driving through half the time, you know, you're kind of blown <laughs> off the road. I think back then they should have had signs that would say, wind current era area, go back now. Even if you don't blow out of your car, there's no clothing that will help you. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally, we have signs now, and I'm sure back then this would have been even, even worse than it is now. But when you go to rural areas of Kansas, there are signs that say, no services at this exit yeah. or no services for 90 miles. <laughs> so, so you better stop now. <laughs> exactly. The signs back then should have said something like, we hope you've packed a pen. Because you're out of luck. So. Well, great. Thanks, Michaela, for stopping by. Sure, no problem. <laughs> for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Museum Director Bob Kekheisen. Hello. And Museum Re Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. So guys, it's our uh, 99th podcast. And some genius came up with the idea of challenging our listeners and Nikayla to connect William Allen White to one of the more well-known 99s in history. Uh, Agent 99 from the old TV series and more recent movie, Get Smart. Okay. So Bob, what can you tell us about Agent 99? Okay, well... Could have tried to connect him to the 99s, which was Amelia Earhart's women's flying group, mm. but that would have uh, probably been a little too obscure. Mm -hmm. Well, anyway. Or easy. Yeah, yeah. We, like, <laughs> we like pop culture stuff. So, Well, as you mentioned, Agent 99 was a character on the TV series Get Smart, which ran from 1965 to 1970. And Get Smart was a parody of the secret agent TV shows and movies that were all the rage at the time. I mean, think back to this is the time of James Bond and The Man from Uncle, which was you know the big hit when I was like nine, ten years old. So a long time ago. Yeah. Oh yeah, long, long time ago. <laughs> no. Yes, we all wanted to be we all wanted to be Ilya Kuryakin from uh, <laughs> The Man from Uncle. But anyway. Um, but the, the twist on this is it was a parody uh, of all those secret agent shows, and the show was developed by Mel Brooks and Buck Henry, and it featured Don Adams as Maxwell Smart, who was kind of the bumbling secret agent, uh, who was also known as Agent 86, but they didn't really refer to him that much by that. But his partner was Agent 99, and she was uh, played by Barbara Feldon who I will unashamedly admit was, admit was one of my first celebrity crushes. <laughs> I was in love with Barbara Feldman for a while. Uh, but she never calls, she never writes. But anyway, uh, but Maxwell Smart was pretty much this bumbling idiot secret agent. And Agent 99 was his partner who was a kind of tall, cool, attractive, competent secret agent <laughs> who was much more skilled than uh, Smart. And it seems like uh, you know she was always ending up getting in some pickle and getting rescued usually by accident, not by design, <laughs> by, you know, some uh, idiot thing that Maxwell Smart did. Um, and interestingly, in the original TV series, you never learned, or we never learned, uh, Agent 99's actual name. She was always just called Agent 99. Well, she, the, the character, also appeared in subsequent versions of Get Smart. First, there was a movie called The Nude Bomb, which I know you've... <laughs> 
all got on your Netflix list, right? Um, well, I do now. Yeah. Well, that was released in 1980 um, and featured the cast from Get Smart. And later, they did Get Smart Again, which was a TV movie in 1989, and Barbara Feldon played Agent 99 in both of those movies. And then in kind of a bizarre twist, in 1995, uh, Fox aired a very short-lived version of the series, and once again, Barbara Feldon and Don Adams reprised their original roles, only this time, since it was 25 years later, the main character was their son, um, Zach Smart, uh, who, Maxwell Smart was now chief of the agency of control, and Barbara Feldon was a congresswoman, so the story is really about their son, Zach, who, interestingly, was played by Andy Dick in one of his early roles. I had such hope for that show because I loved the original Get Smart and then that just... Yeah, it was... was not good. (laughs) Not good. But interesting, and since we're on the character of Agent 99, uh, most recently Agent 99 was portrayed by the actress Anne Hathaway in the 2008 movie that was inspired by the original television series of Get Smart. And well, I think Anne Hathaway is a great actress, but Barbara Feldon will always be Agent 99 for me. (laughs) So there you have it. Great. Thanks, Bob. And Kayla, what do you got for us? Well, I've got two solutions for you. So it's two for the price of one day. Yeah. Um, Blair pointed out last week to me that there were two Agent 99s. So you're getting two solutions today. Uh, The first, of course, is to Barbara Feldon, who, as Bob mentioned, played Agent 99 in the original series. Um, But before becoming Agent 99, Barbara Feldon had a small role in a series called Griff, which starred a Canadian-born actor named Lauren Green. And Green is best known for his role as Ben Cartwright on the series Bonanza. And now this is kind of a diversion from our pop culture, but (laughs) bear with me. Okay, Okay, the name Bonanza referred to a large (laughs) mineral deposit of silver in Virginia City, Nevada, also known as the Comstad Lode. The mineral um, mine was owned by George Hurst, who was the father of the publishing tycoon William Randolph Hearst who in 1936 declared his support for presidential candidate and Kansas Governor Alf Landon. Alf Landon happened to be friends with William Allen White, and White spent much of 1936 trying to undo the damage Hearst did when he announced his support of Landon's campaign. Um, Hearst had been a staunch liberal, and then he went Republican, and the anti-liberals didn't like that very much. So William Allen White had to clean up the mess. <laughs> so, okay. so you have Feldon to Green to Bonanza to George Hearst to William Randolph Hearst to Alf Landon to William Allen White. That's so. a nice mix of pop culture yeah, and history. That's, okay. <laughs> okay, gotcha there. I'm happy to say that Anne Hathaway's is much simpler. Really? Yeah, it, okay. it's really short. Um, Anne Hathaway, as Bob mentioned, starred um, as Agent 99, but she's also known for her role in The Princess Diaries, which also starred Julie Andrews. As we all know, Julie Andrews appeared in My Fair Lady, which is based on um, George Bernard Shaw play Pygmalion. And from previous podcasts, we know Shaw was a member of the Fabian Society in England, which um, was a socialist society. And H.G. Wells was also a member. And Wells and William Allen White were acquaintances. So there you go. Anne Hathaway was much easier. Easier. Yeah, that's (laughs) that's surprising. I would go the other way around. Yeah. Cool. Good job. Thank you. Great. Um, So, Bob, would you like to issue the challenge for the next episode? Sure. Well, I didn't want to throw anyone with a lot of high math here. You know, uh, it's not really our thing. But since this is our 99th episode, that means our next one will be 100. 100. Ooh, yeah, you guys are good. All right. That's right, our 100th episode. However, it's not 
our 100th sixth degree of William Allen White because we didn't start this particular piece of nonsense <laughs> until about episode 23 or so. But nevertheless, we thought it would be appropriate to match Mr. White with something signifying a 100. So we want you to connect William Allen White to the man on the $100 bill, Benjamin Franklin. So if you think you can connect the Sage of Emporia to one of our founding fathers who is a bit gouty in the leg, just send your solution to podcast at kshs.org. That's podcast with an S. That concludes episode 99, Left in the Dust. To see photos of the motor and coat and goggles, go to our website, kshs.org, and click on Podcasts. To find out about our latest podcast posting or other new artifacts and photographs acquired by the Historical Society, check out our Facebook page and become our friend. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Just search for Kansas Historical Society. Come back in two weeks when we celebrate our 100th episode. Yay! Not only will we feature another fascinating artifact from our collections, this time a 1960s pinball machine, but we'll also take a trip down memory lane with a look back at some of your favorite bits from our first 100 episodes. Join us in two weeks to mark this milestone in digital entertainment. See you then! This podcast has been a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. Life in the fast lane.